Hey, thanks for joining us today on the For the Bible Tells Me So podcast. My name is Riley, and I get the amazing chance to oversee our wonderful students in the young adult ministry here at Calvary Monterey. Hey, today's episode is something unique. For many of us, you know, the recent conversations around race have been confusing. And I get it. Untangling the web of systemic racism is a messy process. So much so that many of us either give up or feel like it isn't even worth it. Or worse yet, we just totally shut it out of our lives. But the question we have to ask ourselves as Christians is this. How does Jesus inform my thoughts and my actions concerning race relations? Now, this is a massive question to answer, and honestly, it will be a marathon effort rather than a sprint. But I believe that the power of God's Spirit, coupled with the support of loving community, can lead us into new territory of fulfilling God's and Jesus' command to love God and to love our neighbors. So today, my good friend Dante Stewart was kind enough to give me some of his time to help us navigate the intersection of faith and race. And I just realized, you know, that as we jump into this conversation, you might not agree with everything that we talk about here. And I just have to say up front, that's okay. It's totally okay. All I ask is that you approach this with humility and a willingness to hear stories and perspectives from a fellow brother in Christ. I'm right there with you. We're all on this journey together. And I believe that with the guidance of God's spirit, we'll learn more deeply how we can love mercy, do justly, and walk humbly with our God. So with that, let's get into this conversation with Dante Stewart. here with a really good friend of mine, Dante Stewart. Uh, we're obviously not in the same place right now. Dante is in Augusta, Georgia, uh, but he and I go way back in our friendship together and doing ministry together. This is a real brother of mine. Um, Dante is obviously a man, a father, a husband, but also a writer, theologian, student, preacher, athlete, fellow coffee connoisseur is there is there a blue check mark after your twitter name right now no not okay. at all it's, it's not coming, at all man. it's coming at least not yet at least not yet <laughs> someday in the future at it's coming I'm, I'm believing that for sure but dante yeah, you got maybe, man you got a lot going on man you are a, a busy man uh, a prophetic mm. voice in in our church community um you know, you're doing a lot of work out there in augusta so i just want to say hey Thank you so much, bro, for the deposit that you're about to put into our church right now, man. It's so good to yeah. have you here. So good. Yeah, for sure, man. It's, uh, it's good to be with you, my brother. Yeah. Uh, it's really good, man. Uh, these, are, these are indeed trying times, and yeah. you know we're trying to navigate how to make it through. So yeah, you know, anytime sure, we get to connect, no, it's good. It's good. I, I thought that for today, you know, I, I'm recording this with you two and a half weeks after George Floyd's death. And there's been some time, you know, to kind of process uh, just the way our nation has kind of shifted over the past few weeks. I know you've been speaking a lot. You've been sharing a bunch. 
I've watched some different interviews that you've had on Instagram with your pastor, uh, with some other people, and uh, been really impacted by what you've been saying. There's a lot of resources out there with your name on it that people can go find. Thank you. Yeah, man. And I, I felt like for today, what would be kind of fun to do is just to, I think maybe just kind of hear from you, you know, from your position, just kind of how you're doing right now. You know, we're, we're talking a lot about the issues. We're talking a lot about what's happening in America, what's been happening in America for years. Um, yeah. Yeah. How the church has at times been complicit in um, not speaking out for the voiceless as well. And I just wanted to hear from you just how, how are you doing right now? What, what is, how's your body doing? How's your mind, your heart doing yeah. right now? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm exhausted. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's tough because, you know, with, with, with everything that's going on right now, man, we, we live this reality hmm. and there is something very kind of visceral about the trauma that we go through. Um, that, you know, when we, when we think about, you know, when, when we're arguing about issues, um, and wrestling through issues for many people, there's just that issues. Uh, but for us, man, it's literally reality. Yeah. I mean, there's, 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 there's a difference between, you know, arguing about a topic and actually living it. Um, and you know, it's, it's tough for real because not only are people expecting us to teach people in this moment, the people that we are talking to are optimistic. And I don't know why people are optimistic about this moment. I just don't. I think, yeah. you know, there's something particularly unhealthy about this kind of op this kind of triumphalism I'm seeing that this is a moment of change, change. Uh, you know, I get the kind of want to theologize, you know, horror and terror into triumph. Um, but for us, you know, we, we are living in Saturday night mm. yeah. for us, you know, yeah, we, we're not, we're not rushing to Sunday. Yeah. Because we know we don't control time. Mm. But too often people who had the ability to control how narratives are shaped and shifted, you know, can easily get to Sunday and narrate, you know, good news from the perspective of, you know, resurrection, but not necessarily the connection between crucifixion and so social suffering in a yeah. world that forgets. And so I'm doing okay in this moment. I mean, yeah. we're still grieving three lynchings in the last yeah. 30, 40 days. Mm -hmm. uh, we are forced to have to endure, you know, seeing somebody that looks like us executed in very public ways. Mm -hmm. And then the only way that we get justice is just, it so happened to be a video. So then there comes the question, what happens when there, there is not a video? And we're trying to wrestle with, you know, the question of how does faith speak in the face of black death? You know, what is good news that people have to offer black people in this moment mm. that doesn't capitulate to white comfort? Yeah. That doesn't capitulate to, 
you know, hey, just preach the gospel and everything will be okay. I mean, that may work for white people. Mm-hmm. That just don't work for us. And so yeah. I'm, you know, I'm okay in this moment. There are good things happening personally and even publicly. Um, but we have to remember Martin Luther King was murdered in a suit. That's a metaphor to always remember. Mm. Martin Luther King was murdered in a suit. Mm-hmm. And the relevance of that is that the one, in some sense, one would call the great democratizer of life was cut off mm. in very violent ways. And then how do you speak of hope beyond somebody like that? How do you speak of hope? You have to figure out a way mm. to try and speak of that. So. Yeah, amen. I'm good. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that, man. It's kind of taking us a little bit deeper into just how you as a man are doing right now. How how has it been? I mean, for you, you're also a leader. You're you're leading your home. You're a leader in your church, a, a large church, um, a large church of primarily black people. How are you dealing with not only kind of absorbing what's happened recently, just kind of like, you know, internalizing that, but how are you doing, dealing with actually leading out of that, that pain, that suffering right now? Has it been exhausting? Has there been like comfort in the solidarity to a degree or how are you feeling with that right now? Yeah, it's, it's tough right now because we're not only dealing with, you know, Amar Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and the countless names who were not mentioned, uh, who were murdered brutally. Uh, We're also dealing with the tragic conditions of a society that cherishes, you know, white lives more than others. And so we're, you have to think about it, man, we are dealing with coronavirus right now. I know, I know. And and, and the health disparities in coronavirus are astronomical. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, you know, the type of care that we're receiving, you know, unemployment, you know, we're getting hit very hard with unemployment. I mean, we've had people die at my church. We have people lose jobs. We have yeah. people, you know, get coronavirus. We, we are struggling with, you know, what does it mean to think about reentry? You know, mm-hmm. we're struggling with, you know, how do we keep the energy going when, you know, it ain't, our church ain't like a white church, you know, yeah. you can, I mean, it's like extremely expressive. I mean, yeah. it's very, you know, very, very expressive. I'm not saying white churches aren't expressive, but I mean, like, you know, it's a particular type of expressive yeah. that it, it gets hard to replicate that when you're not inside of kind of in, in a group kind of, you know, relationship and, and service and worship. And so that's that's tough, man. That is that has been that has been hard. We no lie, man. We we have days where we're like me and Goodman, me and Pastor Goodman, where we we say, man, we are tired. We we are tired of it all. Yeah. Um, and thank God, God bless him so much, man. Because you know I'm not in the position that he's in as senior pastor leading in this moment, um, but I'm extremely close to him and to see you know, how he's leading in and out of this moment um, has become incredibly impressive uh, and inspiring um, and encouraging um, and informative uh, of, you know, what does it mean to pass in a pandemic? 
while inside of the pandemic, you're dealing with the tragic conditions of racism in this moment. So it's, um, yeah, it is hard leading. It is. <laughs> it is hard leading. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I look at you guys and I'm reading a book right now called Leadership Pain. And the, the big concept mm. in the book right now, I don't know if you've read it or not, but the main concept so far is that you can only lead to the degree of what pain you've endured. So mm. the, the that's greatest, all right. That's good. Yeah. The greatest leaders have experienced the most pain in some ways. Mm. I've learned how to, mm. you know, in some, some kind of way with the, the Lord's guiding and um, his strength been able to kind of lead through that. And I think I see you and pastor Goodman. I'm like, dude, the, the leadership. I mean, I already look at pastor Goodman. I follow you guys on the podcast real regularly and I've been digging mm-hmm. his new series, the, the kind of like looking at the report, your health report and kind of saying, Oh, there's yeah. a virus of fear, you know, there's like these different yeah. kind of things. And uh, yeah. the way he's been kind of leading the church yeah, like you said, through the pandemic and through the, the, the effects that we've seen for so long of racism in our country. Mm-hmm. I think that, man, just the pain that you guys are feeling, I, I see you guys leading through it. I'm like, man, these guys are going to be, are continuing to grow as, as men and leaders. And it's just going to, the impact, I think is just going to be deeper and deeper and deeper. And so for me, a white man who hasn't experienced racism ever who hasn't barely been affected by the coronavirus i look at you guys i'm like man you guys are like my heroes in a lot of ways there's just like so much depth to your leadership that i really admire and look up to so from afar i'm just very thankful for the way you guys are handling it right Mm. now it's really beautiful Mm. how uh for you man man. we're gonna say something and and, you know we got a great we got a great staff yeah we got a great staff yeah yeah, we got we got an incredible staff. I know that's like a cliche answer, you know. No, dude. Um, but but like the team is real, so important. We got a group. Yeah, bro. We have an incredible staff, man. That you know, and I'm I'm just a part of that. So I do a lot of content and sermon and social media stuff. But man, I mean, I'm talking about from our worship team to our multimedia yeah. team to our pastoral care team yeah. to our congregational care team to you know, various ministries that we have around and, and, yeah. and everything, man, it's just, it's just crazy how much, you know, people have been able to adapt and adjust in this moment. And I think, you know, you have to realize it's kind of like Nehemiah. There's that, there's yeah. that section in Nehemiah uh, where they have the names listed. Um, of mm-hmm. course, you know, Nehemiah's name is the one who was born on the book uh, or whatnot, but those names listed are forever there because they're integral to the rebuilding work. And so those names, you know, the relevance of those names is that everybody have a part to play uh, in this type of work that we're mm. trying to accomplish of building life together, building common yeah. life together yeah. within the community and without. And so, you know, leaders uh, uh, inside of churches, especially during this moment, you know, are not simply those who are on Sundays, but you know, a lot of times, I'm not saying you're saying that, but I'm just saying, you know, a lot of them are those, you know, who are grinding it on in very, you know, kind of consistent and creative ways. Um, and, 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 you know, in some sense, earning their leadership stripes yeah. uh, in this moment and, and, you know, being courageous uh, in trying 
again, felling again and felling yeah. better, as uh, the great novelist would say. I love that. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a great staff, bro. It's been lit. It's yeah, been you can tell, man. It's so cool. Hey, let me in yeah. just for a minute, if you wouldn't mind. I'm just curious about just, you know, you leading your family right now. And uh, mm-hmm. I know Jazz, your wife, she's beautiful. She's like so disciplined, it seems, and so mm-hmm. like courageous. And your little mm-hmm. boy, man, Asa. And yeah, man. Um, I'm just curious, bro, what, what's it been like in your home? If you, if you wouldn't mind talking just a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Like, no, it's all good. No, you it's know, cool. for, for you, like, how, how has marriage been lately? Mm-hmm. Are you guys, mm-hmm. what, what are your conversations like? Yeah, 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 bro. Um, you know, we, well, we just hit six years of marriage, uh, so that's oh, congrats, bro. Encouraging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, our our anniversary was on twenty third of May, so uh, we had six years of marriage, so that was pretty dope. Um, you know, a lot of our, I mean, me and Jazz have really been talking about race a lot. I mean, yeah. have really been reading and thinking and talking, and you know, she's doing some things at work uh, in the Air Force uh, across you know, diversity and inclusion and, and justice and thinking about, you know, what type of structural environment that we are creating, you know, for those who are on the margins of society whenever they enter into these various institutions. So we have actually been talking a lot about, you know, everything that's going on right now and trying to figure out how to wade through this moment. Yeah. Um, with with everything that's going on, she's home more, so it's cool. Mm-hmm. I uh, We get a chance to spend a lot of time together. So... You know, that's, that's been very encouraging um, or whatnot. So things haven't opened up as far as like, you know, our development center, child development center. So Ace is home a lot. And so okay, he's yeah. missing out on a lot of the kind of child to child interaction that, that should happen. But um, yeah, man, it's been really good, bro. Like, like, you know, being home and, and, and like going on walks. Like mm-hmm. we, yesterday, you know, we, we were able to, you know, go on a walk on the river and talk about, you know, mm. just everything <laughs> and just talk and enjoy one another and chill. So that's in home has been, it's, it's, it's been dope, man. It's been, it's been helpful. Even though I've been so busy, man, I, I I'm here in my office and, you know, writing and yeah. thinking and <laughs> interviewing yeah. and doing events uh, or, or whatnot. Life has gotten much busier than we're normally used to. So yeah. we're still going kind of through that adjusting phase of figuring out how to adjust at the moment. But cool. it's all yeah. good. Yeah, man, good. for sure. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts just about Asa. I mean, how old is he now? Is he two or three? Uh, actually, he's only one. Only one? He's, yeah, he's about to be two. That is so a he's young about man to be right two. there. And next month, next month on the twelfth. What's today? Today is the twelfth, right? In one month, he'll be two. That's wild! Oh my goodness! Okay. Yeah, wonder, yeah, yeah. He's so yeah. smart for yeah his age. Yeah. What he's do so you? Crazy. I mean, for for you, man. Um, I mean, you grown up in the South and everything. Your boy's being raised in the South right now. What <laughs> what is a? Uh, what are some hopes that you have for Asa's life moving forward? Hmm. what do you hope that what what kind of world do you hope that he steps into in the future how are you preparing him Hmm. for the these upcoming Hmm. years Hmm. that's a good question um you know i think i think brother um 
I think honestly, man, I'm, I'm trying to work for a world in which black people are worth loving and fighting for. Mm. And I mentioned, I mentioned that before, but I wonder, you know, America does not, and, and we could talk about race now. We can get into mm. the, the race conversation. So yeah. listeners, buck, buckle up, listeners, buckle up, buckle up. <laughs> Let's go, go get man. You, grab your, grab your any, water. If they're uh, still here, let's grab go your, for it. <laughs> grab your notepad. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I think when we're talking about American society, you know, in very real ways, America doesn't have a problem being around black people. And when I think America, I'm thinking majority of America, white America. We don't have a problem being around black people, but we do have a problem believing that black people are worth fighting for. That's a difference. Yeah. That's a totally different word. Do you really believe that black people are worth fighting for? And if you as a white person were to be in a black person's position, how would you want your society and its people through its laws and through its institutions, through the sectors of society and its communities, how would you want them to love you? How would you want them to interpret your life? How would you want them to tell your story? Mm. And I think that's the kind of reality that we should wrestle through of, you know, what type of world am I trying to build for my son? I'm trying to build a world where he's free. And many people say, well, you know, black people, you know, are Fortune 500 company associates and and uh, I mean, bosses and, you know, black people are coaches. We just had a black president, you know? And I would say, respond to that, that, you know, even though America is not the America that it was in 1860 or 1960, America still is fundamentally shaped by this narrative of racial difference. And so as people try to understand the language of race, I mean, I hear somebody again, I don't see color. There's no such thing as race. And I would say, you know, in some sense, you may not believe race is actual thing, but you can't deny that race is defining. It's very easy, you know, to say, you know, yeah, I don't see color, I don't believe in it, or, you know, people are overshooting it and boosting it, but it's, it's, it's much different, you know, when you're in a position to which race negatively affects you in your society. And so if people don't even understand the language of race, I would say that, yes, I agree that race is a social construct but it is a construct which has power within society. Mm. It's not simply a social construct, but race has also become a political construct. It's not simply a political construct. It is also a theological construct. Mm. And what I mean by being a theological construct is when we think about religion, and we thinking about a history of religion. We thinking about a history of race and religion. Uh, this language of race, I would point to uh, Ibram Kendi's book, Stamp from the Beginning. 
where Ibram Kendi goes into history and shows how in European Western expansion, you know, you had the missionary, you had the merchant, and you had the soldier. The missionary brought this language of faith, felt that, you know, it was their manifest destiny. It was their theological destiny to win the world. And then whenever they went to other continents, they believed that those who already existed there are already savages. And so this language of race, in some sense, became, you know, a defining characteristic whereby one believes one is saved or one is not. Whether one is in need of salvation or one is not. Whether one is a savage or one is not. And this language of race became the defining characteristic of the social relationship. You know, black became evil, dark, nasty, bestial, ugly, needing control. White became pure, pristine, innocent, all things lovely and beautiful. And so since the 1500s, these, this reality of race, since the 1500s, has been defining. And so I would simply say that race is now and has been for a long time. If anybody wants a working definition of race in American society, I would say that race is the defining, dehumanizing, destructive, and even deadly reality in the structure of a society, in its policies, in its practices, in its values, and in its outcomes. Mm. Let somebody say, you know, hey, I still don't agree with you. Well, there was a thought experiment once done where, you know, Professor Jane Elliott uh, had a group of students together and she would say you know hey if you as a white person would change places within a, with a black person at any moment in time in history then raise your hand and not one hand went up if you as a white person and she said that she repeated it if you as a white person would trade places with black person at any moment in history then raise your hand and no hands went up and she said you know since you didn't raise your hand, then you know what's going on. You know what's going on. Unless somebody disagrees with that thought experiment, I would simply say, get your birth certificate, get your census, and hold in your medical documents, hold that imaginary documents in your hand, and all of us in the room, we hold our hand up. Everybody who didn't put W on that document, put your hand down, so you'll see all these black people hands go down. Hispanic, Asian, you see all these hands go down. I don't think you heard me. Everybody who didn't put W on that document, put your hand down. And all these white people hands will stay up. And I would say, since you put W, then you know W means something for you. Hmm. Wow. I thought of it like you that know before. W, you know W means something for you. And you know it means something defining into society. And because you wouldn't switch places, you know it means something dehumanizing for somebody else and destructive and deadly, both in the structure of society, in its policies, in its practices, in its values, and in its outcomes. Hmm. 
and you wouldn't you wouldn't change. Yeah. So then the question becomes, what are you going to do with that? Because mm. you can't deny it, but what you can do is change it. Yeah. I love to talk about that, like what you kind of do from there. But before we go there, uh, Dante, do you feel like are you kind of hoping for a world in the future where race isn't something people see or are you hoping that it like, are you hoping that there won't be like W's on a social security card or any other kind of thing like that? Or is it important mm -hmm. to have that? What do you, what do you think about mm -hmm. that? Yeah, I don't think it's practical to, to dream of a world in which race does not exist. But I do want to dream of a world in which race does not become the defining characteristic of mm. social hierarchy. Yeah. Mm. And so the thing is not that we have race. The thing is that race has become the defining, dehumanizing, destructive and daily reality. Mm. That it is what Eddie God calls the value gap. And so Eddie God would say, you know, that you know, despite the real gains he write in his book, Democracy in Black, he says, white supremacy continues to shape this country. And, you know, less people have a, that language of white supremacy makes someone quickly on the inside. You know, you remember that imaginary document that you had in your hand? Yeah. You know, white means something for you and you wouldn't trade places. So it means something for someone else. Yeah. And so our society and what it chooses to value and what it, in the defining reality of our society, if we look at the wage gap, if we look at the wealth gap, if we look at healthcare and disparities, if we look at uh, income inequality, if we look at the way cities are constructed, why is, yeah. why is seaside what it is? It's because of white supremacy in the policies mm -hmm. that redline certain districts. Yeah. That put, that put money to certain places that didn't get other places. Yeah that one devalues a certain community, therefore one does not believe that community is worth fighting for in policy. Yeah. And so for me, you know, I don't dream of a world in, in, in some sense where race, you know, is dead because I don't think that's practical, but I do dream of a world in which race is not defining in destructive yeah. ways. Yeah. And so, you know, how do I think that changes? I know for a fact it doesn't change by me simply being in a relationship with people. Hmm. You know, oftentimes when, when we get in moments like this and it, it kind of really makes me angry, people start talking about racial reconciliation hmm. and unity. We need to go ahead and just get rid of that language right now. Because at least since the 1990s and Nexus of Promise Keepers as an organization, people have been having racial reconciliation conversations. Hmm. And guess what? We have not upended any inequality in our society. People will say, you know, the church needs to get out on the front lines and until the church do this, then the society won't. It's a lie. Because the church is a very institution that sustains this narrative of racial difference. Oh, you don't believe it? Well, look at the library. Who's in my library? Who am I reading? Who am I voting for? Who am I around? Who's my most defining social relationships? If they're white, 
then maybe it's time to reconsider. Maybe I have some limitations in this conversation on race. Mm. I need to rethink some things. And it's not simply because, you know, it's personal choice and, you know, uh, it's kind of preference. If anything, if you understand the way social world works, we understand that your choice is not, not simply your choices. Your choices are informed by the structure and system by which them choices are made. So if you're in an environment where your choices are limited and, construct, and constricted because of a reality outside of you, then it's going to inform your choices. Nobody makes choices in vacuums. Right. We always make choices in the, in the context of history. And we have to deal with those realities that the choices that we make not only sustain this kind of narrative of difference, but it continues to perpetuate it. And I think, you know, in order for us to change, I, I get, I, 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 I lean on Eddie Glaude a lot uh, because of his analysis of this, of, of this issue where he says, you know, we need to up in our racial habits whereby white fear of losing a white Christian America is upended by policies and practices that will change our habits, change our views, and change the structure of our society. So do I believe in preaching? Of course, I believe in this moment there needs to be some type of good news communicated in the world in disarray, a world where oppressive regimes wreak havoc on people, a world where narratives of racial difference and racial realities uh, and white supremacy is wreaking havoc on black lives continue, the narrative, a world in which you know, one can call someone a thug for protesting police brutality, but call white people with loaded ARs, you know, fine people wanting to liberate themselves. I believe in preaching. I also believe in prayer. I believe that prayer becomes the guiding force that keeps one going in this fight against darkness, this struggle. It becomes the way whereby which my heart is not simply grounded in the life of God, but my views of a world becomes change and how I imagine that world should be. But I also believe in protests. I believe it shakes us up at our illusion that the world as it is, is the way that God wants. Yeah. And that the way this thing, this thing called American life is good and normal. It's not, we need protests. Yeah. And I also believe in policy, that we need policy in place to change the structure and order of our society. Because American society has been found wanting. American society has been found not equal. And we need a better reality. As Martin Luther King said, you can't get somebody to like me, but you sure can't keep him from lynching me. And that's important mm. work. Yeah, it is. Wow, thanks for unpacking that a bit for us. That is. Yeah. I don't think I've heard you say it like that before, but that really, uh, well, I'll be chewing on that for a while. I think that, you know, one of the things that I kind of picked up as you were talking is just that the, so the goal is not to be colorblind. It's not to eliminate just the social construct or the political construct of race necessarily, but it's to actually close the value gap. And uh, exactly. I think about, you know, what Paul says in Galatians about, 
there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And, you know, I think that for a lot of us white Christians, we've taken that to say like, oh yeah, dude, we're, we don't want to see color. We don't want to see somebody who's mm -hmm. poor as different as somebody who's rich. We don't want to see these differences. We're all just made one in the image mm -hmm. of God. But mm -hmm. it feels like what Paul is actually saying, if you look back at Acts, the work that he's doing through writing these letters, through going to the elders to mm -hmm. talk about Gentiles being integrated into the church, it seems like mm -hmm. what he's not trying to do is like eliminate where somebody came from or where they're going, but he's trying to actually elevate everyone, like restore mm -hmm. dignity, restore the sense mm -hmm. of like, you're my brother, you're my sister. I'm going to fight for you. Like you should be in this mm -hmm. family with me. And that's not, um, so you're not trying to eliminate necessarily. It seems like you're trying to like really lift up and have a deeper care for one another. When you read about the love and charity and the grace that, Paul talks about in scripture, it's, it's very others focused in a lot of ways. There's like this, um, I don't know. It's like for us in the, in 2020, I mean, there's a lot of action that we can take. And I'd love to talk about that here in a minute. And, uh, but it seems like, the, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but it seems like the way Paul is talking about it, like in Philippians two, when he's talking about loving others from a place of selfless ambition and uh, talking about moving forward in this love that's demonstrated by Christ. It's just that mm -hmm. there's like this, almost like this, uh, like putting aside just your preferences, your own experiences to a degree, to love someone who's different than you, who, who has had maybe different experiences than you, to value those things and to fight for that person and to fight for like their human flourishing, fight for their exactly. children, their, their families. And so I feel like exactly. all the things that you're talking about, it's like, that's just like a, almost like a way to kind of, I don't know, maybe dig a little bit deeper, expound on these truths that we find in scripture. I feel like for those of us who maybe aren't as familiar with race, um, like talking about it and talking about inequality mm -hmm. and racism, the things that you're talking about, I feel like are stemmed straight from scripture. This is stuff that Paul oh, yeah. was really yeah, alluding to. Yeah. So I think that to be able to talk about it in this way is so helpful because it kind of brings this Christian faith or orthodoxy into real Christian action or orthopraxy, you know, and that, um, exactly. It, it's just, uh, it's really, yeah, beautiful. yeah, 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 exactly. And, and I would say, man, that Paul is not the only model by, whereby which we think about building community together. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges is that white Christians and, you know, I think I could I could speak to this because, I mean, Please I know do. the environment very well. Too often white Christians stay reading Paul because Paul talks about language of love and unity mm -hmm. and and peace and all of this. And Paul becomes a perspective whereby one reads the whole narrative of scripture. And so maybe in some sense, you know, it's time to kind of broaden our understanding of, you know, how does one build community uh, out of the kind of biblical narrative? Uh, one may read Paul and I get it. I get it. I think, you know, Paul's understanding is relevant, but we have to remember that Paul's understanding has not become the nexus or the goal mm -hmm. of community, uh, especially when I think about Nehemiah. You know, yeah. Nehemiah's story is so relevant. 
especially yeah, about it. if one, yeah, if, if, if one wants a framework of, you know, how does one commit oneself to social change as somebody who is a Christian, then one should look no further than Nehemiah's story. And I think too often because preaching, and this is no knock to, you know, there's no knock to your church, but it's just the reality of, you know, preaching within white churches. Too often it has narrated the most important part of life as being inside, inside the heart, the mind, rather than narrating the life as being a whole person. It would be so interesting to see Jesus just come and tell people, you know, be healed and he never did it. It just wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, you know, hey, uh, and the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. I just wonder when Luke is going to be preached. Luke four hmm. inside of churches that the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. Yeah to set liberty to captives, to set the oppressed free. And in the Bible, this language of oppressed is used so much. Like how does one preach Exodus of the story of God's freedom, whereby which we as Christians read the story of Jesus. It's the new Exodus, as one would say. How does one narrate it and now begin to spiritualize so much of the Bible. And I think that's one of the faults is that, you know, too often we spiritualize the Bible and we miss the liberating power that the Bible presents for us. You know, when Nehemiah gets word that, you know, his people are struggling, they're trying to rebuild the walls and the Hebrew Bible, the walls represented, and this is Nehemiah one, the walls represented, you know, the social, political, cultural, religious, uh, economic, et cetera, life and social life that whereby, you know, community is able not simply to have security, but build life together. So the walls are not some simple spiritualized, you know, kind of construct. But this was a legitimate physical thing that allowed one to build life together. Well, the story has it that Babylon came through Nehemiah's town. They took their people they, you know, took their women, they killed them. Uh, and now Nehemiah was not just vacationing in Babylon. Nehemiah, much like black people, were stolen from his land and had people mm. left to die. And so Nehemiah uh, is now in, he's now a cupbearer in chapter one. And he is struggling when he gets word that the walls, are, they're trying to rebuild and they're just not happening. But Nehemiah can't show any emotion. Because why would one show emotion in Babylon when the risk of emotion means that you're not devoted to this kingdom? Mm -hmm. And to risk emotion is to kill a part of yourself that is so visceral to you. Just imagine being someone in that position and having to kill yourself daily. You have to kill the memory of your people who were slain. You have to kill the memory of your homeland. This is not your home. This is not your people. This is not your place. This is not yours. They're only using you for what good that you can bring for them. When Nehemiah gets word and Nehemiah prays, Lord, give me favor with you and man. Let me go back to my people. The Lord gives him favor, goes and gets some resources to go back. Well, on his way back, Nehemiah encounters some uh, disruption. 
they were not simply trying to distract him from the work, but they were also trying to disrupt his destiny. And so Nehemiah gets word that, you know, Tobiah and Samballot, you know, they're now lying on Nehemiah. They're lying on him saying he, mm. he's staging a coup. Uh, or whatnot. And so Nehemiah has to fight through that type of distraction. Then Nehemiah goes to his people in chapter five. We get to chapter five. And I love the way uh, biblical translators uh, of various texts, you know, translate this section. Uh, some of them, and many of them say Nehemiah responds to oppression. And so the Bible says that Nehemiah in chapter five, he hears and sees everything that's going down from chapter one. I mean, from chapter five, one through six he hears everything that's going down and i mean this is not only are they dealing with you know the historical trauma of wombs or what it means to be second-class citizens but they're dealing with economic uh ex exploitation uh in such a way that they have to sell their children they're not only simply dealing with economic exploitation they're reminded continually of their second-class citizenship mm -hmm. by continual monuments of disrespect and of their vulnerability mm -hmm. And so Nehemiah allows their suffering to give room, uh, to have room to speak. And that's something that's incredibly biblical. In the Bible, one of the things that is a high virtue is allowing suffering, social suffering, to have room to speak. Not individual suffering, simply, but social suffering to have room to speak. So Nehemiah hears this suffering. The Bible blessed me with this verse in chapter six. And I encourage <laughs> listeners to go back and read Nehemiah. Yeah. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter six uh, and five, he says this in verse six and seven. He says, I listened to their complaints and I was very angry. Or to the original Hebrew, I was enraged. Hmm. And oftentimes, you know, I would say, if we're talking about race in America, that the test of whether one actually wants to really be unified, really want to be an ally, really want to love, is how does one respond to when, ang when pain becomes anger? Mm. How does one respond when pain becomes anger? Did Nehemiah respond to them to tell them, y'all need to stop complaining, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You shouldn't expect anything from your government. Nope, he didn't say that. Mm. Or did Nehemiah respond, oh, let me just preach some good news to you. Let me tell you that God wants to bless you. And you know, God's got a place for you somewhere in the future. And you just hold on right now, just hold on, just be faithful, pray. No, he didn't respond that way. Mm. Nehemiah responded and said, I was very angry that rage filled the very seat of his being. And I make the case that rage is actually a spiritual virtue because mm -hmm. rage burns away the illusion that the world as it is, is the world that God intends. Come on, man. When I'm, when I'm black and I'm angry, and I am very angry still to this day, it burns away the illusion that the world as it is, is the world that God intends. Mm. It burns away the illusion that you can forget people in society. It burns away the illusion that, uh, you know, all is well. It burns away the illusion that, you know, we simply need us to be around one another. No, we need justice. We don't need charity. 
See, charity, in some sense, centers the comforts of those who have benefited from a given system of injustice. It centers their comfort. It centers their timetable. It centers their kind of agenda for freedom. Justice? It centers the one who was broken, abused, and mistreated. Hmm. Charity wants gradual progress. Justice? Justice asks us, if I was in the position of them, how would I want to be loved? Charity just simply takes photo ops with people and give them, you know, hey, let them know you, you should just be glad that you are where you are, that you're in this program, that you're connected to us. You should be glad with your position. Justice? Justice wants to upset the given system of injustice whereby dignity, agency, and power can be restored. Right. And shall I use Jesus? The, the, the fundamental power of Jesus' public healings is that in a world built on second-class citizenship, exploitation, and disrespect, Jesus is healing, liberates one into a transformative reality whereby one's dignity, power, and agency is restored. That's wow. a theological reflection and relevance of healing. Wow. It's literally it. Mm. And so Nehemiah gets angry and he responds. He prays and he responds. And look how he responds. Nehemiah brings charges against the officials in power. He wants a change in legislation. He brought charges against the officials. He doesn't just want them to be nice about it. He doesn't just want them to be friends. He doesn't just want this kind of quaint reconciliation. Yeah. No. Nehemiah brings charges because he knows and understands that if you're simply in proximity with someone without changing a given system of injustice, then we will recapitulate social suffering and oppression. Hmm. But that's easy to say when you're not in that position. Yeah. But Nehemiah never forgot from whence he came. And so he brings charges against the officials he tells them that y'all need to not simply fix this with policy, but y'all need to repair the damage that had been done yeah. financially. Yeah. Mm. They, you repair the damage that has been done emotionally, psychologically, socially, culturally. Mm. You repair the damage. And Nehemiah holds them accountable. Mm. And then the thing that blessed me at the end is it said that all of them, they did everything they wanted. And the Bible says everybody responded, amen. And as I think about being black and reading that story through the lens of someone being black, I'm waiting for America who have already said amen to white people to say amen to us. Yeah. Wow, bro. Oh my goodness, dude. I know that's a lot. I know that's a lot. So Bro, that's that's a fire, time man. To go back through it. I'm about to say that's this is a this is definitely one of those kind of conversations to re-listen to, chew on, digest, for sure. Man, Dante, I'm so thankful for you and the way you 
break down God's word, man, and call people to real true discipleship action. It's good, man. Um, well, bro, I mean, just to kind of wrap things up, you know, I, I know that people like me, I'm a white pastor. I'm at a church that's predominantly white. Uh, I know that for us, we, we want to, I think, just make some adjustments to our life. We want to do things. We want to read, want to listen. Uh, mm. w- would you just take a moment maybe and just kind of speak to people like me? Just Is there like, a, a, maybe like one book you'd recommend, one podcast, mm. one thing? Mm-hmm. And like, and like what, what, what would you say for people to do right now? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not big on, you know, this language of doing. Right. Because in some sense, you know, if I'm going to do, then I must learn how to see first. Right. And I must learn how to become. And so right now, what I'm more interested in is how we're learn people, particularly white people, learning to see things that they have never seen before. Mm. So how can white brothers and sisters scales fall off their eyes in this moment? And I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna be straight up. Yeah, Somebody may cringe at that statement. Somebody may cringe at that statement. And I don't wanna sound mean right now or not or, or anything, but I wanna say, if you are white in this nation, this world has benefited you tremendously. Mm-hmm. And you have not read anything on race. Now you take benefiting and ignorance and you give it power, it becomes incredibly destructive. Mm -hmm. So my white brothers and sisters in this moment who are very arrogant, it's not a virtue. It's not a virtue. Be honest. You have not read. You, You know things are not okay be willing to change, be willing to. And to those who are confused, continue to be courageous because on the other side of courage is always community. Yeah, it's good. Always, it took courage for Nehemiah to leave Babylon. It takes courage for white people in this moment to read on race, to think about race, to acknowledge it, to be aware, to act, to keep oneself accountable, to amend, and uh, make things right, it's scary work because you risk losing both one's identity of oneself and how one's supposed to think about oneself in the world. Mm. But be courageous. And to those who are already speaking up and speaking out, you know, remember that you know in Nehemiah's story, or even this story, in the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite, they only got close enough to the man on the ground to be listed in the story and mentioned, but there's only one person we remember. That's the Good Samaritan. Good word, bro. Appreciate that, man. Hey, um, just to wrap things up, bro, I'm incredibly thankful for you. The way that you and I have talked about faith and politics and social social change, um, 
family discipleship outreach, like it has over the years transformed and really helped me with my discipleship to Jesus. So this conversation, man, this is just another part of that. I'm really thankful for the deposit. Like I said earlier, thank you so much. Um, mm-hmm. for, you did ask me for one, one book that I would recommend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah you're, you you're a reader, bro. I know it's book. hard, man. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess one book I would recommend. Um, I recommend two. Um, I don't have the other one on me, but I do have one on me. Um, I would recommend Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here. Hmm. Okay. So Austin Channing Brown, I'm Still Here. That is a must read. Must read easily. If you're looking for more of a history, read Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. Absolutely. If you're looking more of kind of wrestling with something that's specifically on race in American society, then this is the absolute best book you can read, Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul. Hmm. So those three books, and if you really want to read something, get The End of White Christian America by Robert P. Jones. Jones. So there you go. You have good four books that you can read. That's really good. Yeah. I, uh, I just watched uh, The Color of Compromise on Amazon Prime, too. If anybody wants to just kind of get a primer on it, there's like three 15-minute episodes on Prime. And uh, it's really, really helpful. Jamar Tisby is a gift to, to the church. He is. Yeah. He is. Well, I'm going to put all those books in the show notes. Um, so those of you who are listening to this in the podcast format, um, feel free to go to the show notes. I'll have links there to the Amazon books. Uh, Dante, how can people keep following you on social media? Where, where are you at on social media right now? Mm-hmm. Oh, hit me up at, at Stuart Dante C, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, Dante, D-A-N-T-E, C as in Christian. Um, that's across my social media platforms. Cool. Um, and you can reach out to me on my website at DanteCStuart.com. Uh, and I try and get back to people as much as I can, but you know, life is a tad bit busy right now, but I do try and get back to people. Yeah. Any, any books we should be looking forward to any, uh, future articles you got going on? I know you're on Christianity today. Yeah. You're on the witness. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I am in the process of writing my first book. So, um, it's going to be fun. I, um, Got some great, great, great conversations coming up. So we're going to see how that goes. So that's all I can tell you right now. Well, I did post this publicly. I posted this publicly, so I can't share this. So my book is going to be called uh, The Cage Bird Still Sings, Being Black in an Anti-Black World. Mm. So that would be number one. So, yeah. Can't wait, bro. Yeah, First first Amazon review right here, man. Can't wait. Hey, let's go. Let's go. Thanks for being here today. Come back next Tuesday for a new episode here of the For the Bible Tells Me So podcast. Check the show notes for info about following and interacting with the young adult ministry throughout the week during Shelter in Place. We hope to see you soon.